0: Is the Canadian government trying to criminalize foods, herbs, vitamins, and any other natural health product that competes with major pharmaceutical products? We'll hear from Toronto-based constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati about the legal challenge of Health Canada he is taking on. While we know of the toxic environmental effects of hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, what about the economic downside? We'll hear from Deborah Rogers, author of a new report on how Americans are being set up for a bubble burst comparable to the subprime mortgage meltdown of 2008. And, what does the death of Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez mean for the future of Venezuela, Latin America, and for the larger global picture? We'll explore this question with journalist and radio host, Stephen Lendman. On today's program outlawing natural health, the fracking bubble, and the life and death of Hugo Chavez. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March seventh, two 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. A recent report by the Climate Commission points to climate change as a major culprit in the extreme weather and record-smashing temperatures experienced across Australia this summer. The report, entitled Angry Summer, authored by Will Steffen, warned that really frightening temperatures would continue over the next two decades. He said, quote, what this is telling us is that climate change is not some hypothetical thing that will occur in the future. The climate has actually changed. We have a climate on steroids, unquote. Among the records broken this past summer were the hottest day nationally across the country at 40.3 Celsius, the hottest stretch nationally at seven days over 39 Celsius, and the hottest month ever, namely January. Australia's top climate commissioner told ABC News, quote, "...we're seeing the actual costs now of inaction, of global inaction, to deal with this problem." Unquote. And that's from The Independent. Neither the U.S. President nor House Republicans seemed willing to accept responsibility for not coming to a budget agreement that would have avoided the mandatory federal spending cuts, spending cuts now set to come down. With the March 1st deadline having passed... U.S. legislation forces $85 billion to be slashed from government spending. Obama has said the cuts will cripple the economy, putting 750,000 Americans out of work and disrupting the lives of the middle class. The GOP, on the other hand, absolved themselves of responsibility, saying that bills they passed in the last Congress to avoid the cuts were not supported by House Democrats and not taken up by the Senate. Efforts are underway to finance the government beyond March 27th and figure out how to avoid another high-stakes budget standoff in May. That comes to us from the Huffington Post. A letter from U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder disclosed by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul mentions the Obama administration's belief that it was justified in certain circumstances in using military force to kill an American on U.S. soil under extraordinary circumstances but had no intention of doing so. Holder wrote in the letter, quote, it is possible, I suppose, to imagine an extraordinary circumstance in which it would be necessary and appropriate under the Constitution and applicable laws of the United States for the President to authorize the military use of legal, lethal force within the territory of the United States. For example, the President could conceivably have no choice but to authorize the military to use such force if necessary to protect the homeland in the circumstances like a catastrophic attack like the one suffered on December 7th, 1941 and September 11th, 2001. Paul said in a statement that Holder's... "...refusal to rule out the possibility of drone strikes on American citizens and on American soil is more than frightening. It is an affront to the constitutional due process rights of all Americans." That comes from the Huffington Post. A group of Syrian rebels have seized about 20 UN peacekeepers from a convoy in the Golan Heights and are threatening to treat them as prisoners within 24 hours. The incident comes on the heels of a Wednesday announcement by the Arab League pledging military in addition to humanitarian and diplomatic support for the Syrian rebels. It also follows a Wednesday announcement by UK Foreign Secretary William Hague that Britain would supply the anti-government forces in Syria million in non-lethal aid, including armored vehicles, body armor, search and rescue, disease prevention, and communication equipment. Middle East blogger Carl Sharpo indicated that the recent capture of UN personnel indicates how all sides are losing control of fighters on the ground, and that there is no way of knowing in whose hands aid will eventually end up. Russia's UN envoy Vitaly Cherkin called the seizure of UN observers, quote, gross disrespect for the United Nations, and he warned on Monday, quote, it's of course something very dangerous they are doing by staging armed activity from that area. It's something which can undermine security between Syria and Israel, so whoever is supporting that kind of activity or approving it tacitly is playing a very dangerous game, unquote. And that comes to us from RT. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez died Tuesday at the age of 58 following a two-year battle with cancer. Hundreds of thousands of Chavez supporters hit the streets of Caracas Wednesday and followed after his remains as they were carried by hearse. The beloved and flamboyant former president passes away, leaving his vice president Nicola Maduro as leader of the Bolivarian movement. Maduro will face the right wing on Enrique Capriles, in a presidential election to be held in 30 days. That comes to us from Press TV and Reuters. An investigation by the BBC Arabic and the Guardian newspaper reveals that a veteran of the Central American Dirty Wars, James Steele, oversaw a network of sectarian police units which set up death squads and torture facilities in Iraq during the Iraq War. Steele had been appointed by then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld to help quell the Sunni insurgency. Steele had the assistance of a second advisor, retired Colonel James H. Kaufman, who helped set up the detention centers and who reported directly to General David Petraeus. General muntader al-Samari, who worked with Steele and Kaufman, and said of them, quote, I never saw them apart in the night." in the 40 or 50 times I saw them inside the detention centers. They knew everything that was going on there, the torture, the most horrible kinds of torture, unquote. Sparked by the leaking of classified military documents through WikiLeaks and informed by allegations from U.S. and Iraqi witnesses, the investigation, for the first time, implicates U.S. advisors in human rights abuses committed by commandos and links former CIA Director Petraeus to the abuse through an advisor. That comes to us from The Guardian. On November 8th of last year, constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati announced a lawsuit against Health Canada over the way it regulates and enforces the use of natural health products. The lawsuit was filed in September of that year. So we're going to discuss with uh, Mr. Galati about some of the details of this case and have him break it down, uh, the statement of claim for us. So, Rocco Galati, thank you very much for joining us. Uh,
1: thank you for having me, Michael.
0: Okay, so first of all, uh, this, is, uh, this was introduced on behalf of uh, uh, Nick Van- Mancuso, the results company, TRC Incorporated, David Rowland, Life Choice Limited, and, um, you know, if... Dr.
1: Dahl and his companies, yeah.
0: Okay, so there are many people uh, involved in this. Now, this, uh, as I stated, in, it, it has to do with uh, the way health products are regulated, okay. and you, me, you point to some very, I guess, draconian aspects of it. you want to sort of give us the uh, the, the bottom line? Sure.
1: First of all, uh, th- this claim is on behalf of uh, Mr. Mancuso, who's a well-known actor, is, uh, has been a user of these products his entire life and the others are doctors, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, one is a doctor, naturopath out of Alberta, and the other two are manufacturers and distributors. I have to correct your government propaganda. The government calls these products natural health products to try to disguise what they're really doing. What these products are are dietary food supplements uh, and vitamins. They're food, dietary food supplements, and vitamins. So don't get the idea they're drugs. The problem with the regime that the government's put in is they, they have defined now under the Food and Drug Act, any and all dietary food products or foods or vitamins are deemed to be a drug if you make any health claims attached to them. So, for, the, for example, if you bottle spring water and put on the label, may help with dehydration, you have to go through the drug testing regime. Or if you say prunes may help with constipation, it is now a drug because you've made a health claim. It's an absurd act. And the reason they've done this is to basically clamp down on small manufacturers and distributors of food and dietary food supplements and vitamins. The other thing that they've done is they've imposed these incredibly onerous uh, site uh, permit fees Uh, natural product numbers. There's three different types of fees that small manufacturers and distributors have to pay that have absolutely nothing to do with the safety of the product. The government concedes it's safe, but they just slap these fees on, and they have to pay them every year. And uh, one of my plaintiffs uh, gives you the example that something that he manufactures that could sell for $12 on the shelf once we're done with all these fees runs at $110, $120. So obviously, these small manufacturers, uh, a lot of them, can't afford those onerous uh, fees that are sli- simply put there, just to put them out of business. Uh, and so, uh, the definition of drug we say is overly broad and arbitrary and absurd. Uh, you can't make any health claims without any food supplement being a drug. And so, we're seeking uh, we're seeking a declaration from the court that. Uh, di- food, Uh dietary food supplement and vitamins should not be regulated as if they were pharmaceutical and or prohibited drugs but rather in the same way food is,
2: mm. is
1: regulated you know when you go to your supermarket none of these regulations apply to the food you buy at any supermarket you don't know what's in your Georgia peaches or your California lettuce or the cherries from Chile yet stuff that's manufactured in Canada were put, uh, put together in Canada which are uh, food and dietary food supplements uh, have to go through this onerous testing as if they were dealing with the big pharmaceuticals and the reason for that quite uh, frankly is because a few years ago there was a study that said that 62% of North Americans now were turning to uh, dietary food supplements and vitamins as a first line of health care rather than pharmaceutical drugs and the the companies obviously saw this as a bottom line issue and they bought, and they uh, lobbied a very friendly government,
0: huh now th- I know, remember there's an old saying that an apple a day keeps the doctor away and it, it sounds like this reg- this regulatory scheme is like uh, the doctor's backlash
1: i I, <laughs> or I don't the know, pharmaceutical so much, so much you know. the doctors, but it is a pharmaceutical company backlash, and uh, you know the reason a, an apple a day keeps the doctor away is the apple and apple juice is the only uh, is the only food that actually carries oxygen to every single cell of the body. Not all foods carry oxygen to all cells, so that's why. But uh, but they'll be banning your apples if you put on the... Uh, they'll have to regulate them as drugs if you say that they're good for your health. Now, the, 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 the other reason, they have a list of... They have a list of diseases under the regulations for which you cannot make any health claims whatsoever uh, with respect to... To uh, these diseases with uh, natural food and food supplements and vitamins and that's because the government has deemed these diseases non-curable and the government says that they want people to only take pharmaceutical drugs for these non-curable diseases and at that point you pause and say hang on a second if these diseases are non-curable why would a well-educated informed adult not have the choice as to what to take or not take and this this is another aspect of the claim is that The government is really dictating to people what products uh, can be available for them for their own uh, health and nutrition. These are all nutritional products. There's a huge difference between a drug and a food supplement and a vitamin, and food supplements and vitamins should not be regulated as drugs.
0: Mm. And we we're talking about. Uh, I mean, we're not even necessarily just talking about any, any novel uh, applications. We're talking about th- like plants and, and foods that have been around here. for, we're for about is-
1: oregano, which has been. Uh, we're talking about oregano, vitamin C, vitamins. Uh, under under a new protocol, the Codex protocol that the government wants to sign to be implemented in July, they're going to regulate they' they're, they're going they're, they're trying to push a requirement that you need prescriptions to buy vitamins and and they want to regulate the dosage. Mm. this has been more this is they're working this out in Europe as we speak and so we're talking about perfectly safe products that have been taken for hundreds, some of them thousands of years such as uh, you know uh, 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 aspirin but there's never been and the health and welfare Canada concedes this there's never been a death associated with any of these uh, 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 dietary food supplements and vitamins. Whereas we know uh, uh, tens of thousands of people a year in North America die from side effects of pharmaceutical drugs.
0: That's a, I'm not
1: saying that I'm, uh, my clients are against pharmaceutical drugs. That's a choice people make. But they can't, if, if, if pharmaceutical drugs can be legal with that kind of death toll, and certainly, you know, uh, oregano oil and vitamins that are all uh, naturally derived shouldn't be banned from people's consumption.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, now, the other p- aspect of this claim, too, Michael, is the way they enforce these regulations.
0: I was going to get to that yeah. because, like, let's just take an example. So okay. you have an elderly couple who uh, they are growing some chamomile and then they want to take it and they want to... Uh, sell it to people a- as a, a, t- a treatment for insomnia or something like All that. All right. Well,
1: I'll give you a better life example that's in the, actually in the statement of claims. Okay. You have an elderly or middle-aged couple, one of whom is a licensed naturopath doctor in Alberta, who, who prescribes these to his, to his patients. And some of them you can't get in Canada, so he imports them from the States and he keeps them in his home to prescribe them to his patients. And one day, a full-armed RCMP SWAT tactical team kicks down his door on a raid because, because uh, Health and Welfare Canada has said, quote, uh, you know, they're on, a, uh, they're on a raid for illegal drugs. The wife is, uh, is forced to sit on her couch for 11 hours at gunpoint while they raid this home. All in full militaristic gear, all designed to intimidate. Now, what, uh, what did, uh, what did they find? Vitamins, vitamin C, and whatnot. Now, the one of the ways they 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 justify these raids is that they have put DHEA, which is a naturally occurring hormone in the human body, which is artificially derived from wild yam and soybean, as a prohibited drug, as if it were cocaine. So. A lot of these products contain this 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 ingredient, so they can say this is a drug rate as if this is cocaine. This is completely outrageous,
2: hmm.
1: outrageous. And we, you know, and, and part of the claim is, is to say that you can't arbitrarily, just because it's convenient to you, uh, if you're doing the bidding for the pharmaceutical companies as a government, arbitrarily define a food as a drug just because you feel like it there has to be some scientific and rational basis for that
0: hmm. and you know scientifically i mean a, a drug is it it should be quite clear the difference between a drug
1: well, and we, a it, food
0: right yes in, in
1: the statement of claim uh, in the statement of claim we plead what the attributes and characteristics of a drug as opposed to Uh, uh, dietary food or food supplements are. If you want to quickly read them to you. Uh, A drug has the following characteristics. They're foreign to the body. They do not become part of our tissues, nor do they contribute nutrients. Uh, They're uh, powerful chemical agents which alter bodily functions by interfering with biochemical reactions and enzymatic processes. Drugs tend to produce side effects. Uh, Drugs are potentially lethal. Drugs deal with symptoms, not causes drugs have to be monitored very carefully to prevent harmful overdoses and untoward side reactions drugs can actually produce disease Uh, on the other hand uh, food dietary food supplements and vitamins have the following characteristics they're nutrients that are both natural and essential to the body if our intake of them is inadequate we die or suffer impaired functioning nutrients work by supporting biochemical and enzymatic processes nutrients do not usually produce side effects Overuse of a few of them can induce temporary reversible symptoms of overload. Uh, nutrients work best in combination with each other. They tend to support one another. And nutrition is a, uh, like a chain. Uh, and Nutrients are safe. Uh, there's never been a single documented fatality caused by taking vitamins.
0: Mm, and plenty with uh, regard to over-the-counter uh, yeah. pharmaceuticals. You know. um, now... It, it seems to state in, in explicitly in the claim that, that this is not just a question of the, uh, the this legislation being brought in unthinkingly, that, that there is a, actually a deliberate effort to, to marginalize people who this are... Is,
1: this is deliberate. As we speak, since they've been enforcing this with tactical uh, units from the RCMP, uh, uh, thousands of uh, dietary food supplements and v- vitamin products have been have disappeared from the Canadian shelves. You will wake up within two or three years. You will You'll be hard pressed to find a health food store.
0: Hmm. Now uh,
1: this is a fact. This is not. You know. This is not uh, paranoia. Uh, a lot of the products. A lot of the products that were on the shelf are gone. Uh, one of the plaintiffs, Nick Mancuso, this is one of the reasons he's, he's joined the lawsuit. He simply can't get a lot of the products he's been using his whole life.
0: Yeah. This is not the way people are used to thinking of Health Canada. They think this is that they're there to protect us and it sounds like this is being used as an instrument for a, a well-backed huge pharmaceutical corporations. That's all it is.
1: I mean, you know, you don't you don't have to look very far past your nose to see this. This legislation is not rational. It's not it's not based on any science. It's not based on any objective Uh, Think about this for a second, Michael. Okay. There's no regulations that apply when you go to your supermarket. I mean, the only regulations that apply is that Health and Welfare Canada has the right, as they should, to come in and inspect the food to make sure it's not rotten. That's all. Mm -hmm. People die from tainted meat. People have died from tainted meat in Canada. And they're not subjected to this kind of ludicrous regulation. Uh, my clients say, of course, they should have the right to come in and inspect at any time, whenever they want, for safety. None of these regulations are for safety. It's all about, do you have the required approval from us every single year from the same product? Do you understand? Mm-hmm. So it's not as if it's it's approved safe in year one and you can just sell it subject to uh, inspection by Health and Food Canada. You have to reapply every year as if it were a fresh application. Where's the logic to that? Uh, and and they should they should be they should be regulating these products no different from food because that's what they are they're food derivatives.
0: Rocco, we're speaking about the Canadian situation are, are there indications this is happening outside of uh this country's borders in the United States or Europe? It's it, it, in Europe it's
1: much worse than here. This is this is where the impetus started. A lot of these pharmaceutical companies, the big ones are European. Uh, in Europe now, you need prescriptions to buy uh, what we normally recognize as simply a food derivative or a vitamin. Uh, they want to codify that across the globe. Uh, that's what this Codex Protocol is all about, this international treaty going to, but we're about to sign, uh, which we'll probably challenge when it's signed. Uh, the United States is not as restrictive as Canada, but they're going in the same direction. Uh, the United States is probably still the most... Uh, uh, liberal jurisdiction and the courts there have really slammed the uh, Food and Drug Administration over these uh, these uh, attempts to curtail these products. So there's the states is the the biggest hope we have that the these products will still be available. And Canada, as usual, is somewhere in the middle. Uh, Europe has just turned fascistic uh, when it comes to these things. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, uh, I, I remember being in in Rome a few years ago, and I. I needed something. I'd rather get headaches, but I needed something for a headache, and a pharmacist had to dispense it. I couldn't just buy the aspirin on the shelf. Well, seems quite it, it, It's really ludicrous.
0: Quite uh, insidious. Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, so, so this is what's happening in Canada. And what I fo- what my clients and I f- frankly find offensive is the, the lack of respect for the rule of law. The other thing, too, is when they apply for these uh, licenses, they place a reverse onus on my clients. So my clients have to prove to them that the products are not unsafe. Well, we know since Parmenides back in the pre-Socratic days that you can't prove a negative.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and the people who are actually screening these applications often are students. They're not, they're not, they don't have the, the, the scientific uh, credentials to even know what they're dealing with. There are no guidelines, Michael issued by Health and Welfare Canada on how they're going to determine whether one of these things gets licensed or not. It's mm. ludicrous. Yeah. Well, they're just not interested in having these products in the hands of small manufacturers and distributors. That's the, that's the bottom line.
0: I don't hear anything about this in the political realm. I mean, we've got a, a liberal leadership race in Canada where uh, people who are looking to lead the party, they're all about, you know, we got to legalize marijuana but this seems even more basic and well
1: well I tell you back when uh, Alan Rock was the health minister there was a parliamentary committee on this issue and the parliamentary committee made 53 recommendations and Alan rock promised to implement every single one of them and the impetus of uh, was that he, he had promised seven million dollars to set up a committee to administer uh, to, 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 to regulate these products somewhere between food and drugs, but closer to food. When the conservatives took over, none of the recommendations were implemented. And my client, David Rowland, at the time in 1997, had initiated the same claim but dropped a lawsuit on the promise of Alan Rock to implement these recommendations of the Parliamentary Committee. So this has been studied by Parliament, and uh, the Parliamentary Committee was on my client's side the I, I don't know why the liberals are making no noise of this but it's 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 a sign of the times i mean uh... you know these these drug companies are huge lobbyists uh... some of the politicians are just not in the know don't care uh... it's the same reason my bank of canada challenge didn't get any mainly, uh, mainstream press we don't have a free press anymore in canada michael mm-hmm. uh, the press is controlled by three or four individuals and they're tightly connected to government that's not a conspiracy theorist talking. That's that's a fact, and this is why this is why a lot of people uh, have now turned to the internet and alternative media to get their message out. I mean, witness uh, Beppe Grillo uh, in the Italian elections, who banned his party members from even talking to the mainstream press, who still got 25 percent of the vote in the national elections. Yeah, uh, uh, the, the reason he wouldn't get the time of day on the national press is because Berlusconi owns it. <laughs> and so our press is owned too by interests. Uh, the interests are more invisible, but you know the fact that the press hasn't picked up on this you know is, is not a big surprise to me
0: yeah, they vet the important stuff yeah okay well, I thank you very much for for bringing some clarity to this uh, situation. Is there anything you can tell us about uh, you know, this uh, the challenge and how it's uh, expected to proceed?
1: Well, the the government has indicated they want to, as usual, they want to bring a motion to strike. This uh-huh. is far for the course for them. They try to uh, you know, sweep it under the rug before the court hears it. So we're looking, hopefully, to be in court May or June on the first round and then proceed from there.
0: Okay. Right. Well, I hopefully will uh, get an update from you uh, at that point. So, uh, Rocco Galati, uh, constitutional lawyer, thank you very much for sharing these uh, thoughts with us. Thank you, Michael. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner radio stations across the country. We're also podcast at the website for the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. Two long-awaited reports were published recently at shalebubble.org. One was by the Post Carbon Institute and the, the other by the Energy Policy Forum. And uh, both of these reports allude to the hydraulic frac- fracturing or fracking boom potentially leading to a bubble burst, which is akin to the housing bubble burst of 2008, to help us um, understand some of the details behind these findings, we have with us from the energy, the author of the Energy Policy Forum report. Her name is Deborah Rogers. She's uh, lectured broadly on shale gas economics. So, Deborah Rogers, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, I wonder if at the outset you could just tell us a little bit more about uh, the Energy Policy Forum, and, uh, which you founded.
3: Sure. We are a research primarily and consultancy nonprofit organization. And uh, most of the work to date has been done on shale gas economics. Uh, and then also we do some work on renewable energy economics. But it's primarily looking at the financials.
0: Mm hmm. Now, Uh, Could you maybe uh, point to uh, some of the concerns uh, or maybe summarize some of the concerns that uh, you're seeing uh, in the wake of this boom that's been alluded to by uh, even by the president?
3: Yes. Um, What we're finding, we have been pulling data for the last couple of years from the various regulatory bodies in different states where uh, the operators have to file what they call production history. Uh, What are the wells actually doing out there? And we've been pulling those numbers um, for several years now. And what we're finding is that these wells, um, the operators have overestimated the amount of gas that's available uh, quite significantly, Um, a minimum of 100 percent overestimation and in some places high as 400 to 500 percent estimation based on what the wells are actually doing. So you you may ask, well, why is that really a problem? I mean, it's always a a guesstimate, right? Well, it's a problem because the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States changed the rules for oil and gas a couple of years ago in 2009. And it enabled these companies to book these reserves without an independent third-party audit. And once they were booked, they could immediately go into the capital markets and borrow more money. So there's a, a potential problem here. In that, uh, because these reserves have been so vastly overestimated, that um, monies may have been a significant amount of money may have been borrowed on assets that either do not exist or are not commercially viable to extract.
0: Mm. Now, the the estimates. Uh, are, are we talking about uh, you know, deliberately overestimating? Is, is like a, there a financial incentive to do that, or is it just the, the, the companies are uh, uh, bad uh, analysts or bad mathematicians? What, what is now, the incentive it, to it, over... If, if there, there is one... There's
3: a decided financial um, incentive to overbook because you could borrow money uh, based on these inflated numbers. And that's that's what I was alluding to with the SEC rule change. That's a problem. Um, so there was a definite financial incentive to overbook. Uh, but it also means that, you know, this whole notion about um, 100 years' worth of gas, they, they've they over, oversold that as well because um, that's actually – in my opinion a deliberate obfuscation because what they're doing is they're comparing what they call resource numbers to reserve numbers and as a friend of mine who's a geologist likes to joke he said the only two things thing that those two words have in common are the first three letters R E S, resource numbers and that's the number unfortunately that President Obama used in his State of the Union address um, allude to all the gas that's potentially available Um, at some point in the future, but we don't necessarily have the right business climate or we don't necessarily even have the technology to extract it at this point, but it's all the gas that's potentially available. Um, Reserve numbers, on the other hand, oh, and let me back up, please. Um, Resource numbers, they claim, are about a 100 years' worth of gas, but the reserve numbers are the actual gas that's available that we can extract today using today's technology and in today's business climate And in that case, the reserves are about 11 years. There's a significant difference between those two numbers. Industry loves to throw out resource numbers because they sound so much more grandiose. But um, it is very, in fact, I don't think there's ever been a case where uh, they were able to extract 100% of the hydrocarbons in place, ever. Mm -hmm. So it's a very misleading figure.
0: Okay, so to to summarize, the the resource uh, numbers is basically the the amount of this substance that's actually there the reserves is what you can meaningfully and practically extract exactly okay now what what, what is would you estimate is the 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 the, per, the percentage like generally speaking how does the the reserve um the, the reserve numbers compare with the resource numbers do we have a even a, a vague um, understanding we're talking 50%, 70%?
3: Well, that's what I was just stating. Um, yeah. The resource numbers are are considered to be 100 years' worth of gas, whereas the reserve numbers are considered hmm. to be only 11 years' worth.
0: Okay. Okay, so yeah, that's, that's, that's a significant um, disparity there. So when we... Um, what, what what other, uh, I mean, this can, does connect, with, since we're talking markets, this is going to connect with other sectors, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So- yes.
3: and, you know, that's interesting because you hear a lot about uh, low natural gas prices are, are a great uh, boon to the uh, American economy at the moment, and there's no doubt about it. That's true. Um, but what I find rather humorous is, you know, picking up the newspaper and, and various journals and, and reading that uh, we're going to have a manufacturing renaissance because um, these companies have given us so much cheap and abundant natural gas and it's just going to stay that way for years and years to come. Well, think that through. These companies are struggling right now. They're, they're having to sell off assets. They're writing down assets to an extraordinary degree, um, huge, massive write-downs. Uh, which is equates to shareholder destruction. All because natural gas prices, or primarily because natural gra- gas prices have plunged so precipitously, these companies cannot continue that. They will go out of business. So the fact that 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 they've somehow um, created this uh, low natural gas price in order to benefit the U.S. economy is just ludicrous. And it, I mean, they're doing everything in their power to try and um, get that gas price back up. And that's exactly what shale exportation is all about, because the price differential between the international price and the domestic U.S. price right now is enormous. Um, for the exact same amount of gas, you, you will pay about $3 or so in the United States, and the Chinese will pay for the same amount of gas as much as $18. So, if you're an operator and you're in business to extract hydrocarbons and get them to the client that will pay you the most money, in this case, it's not the U.S. market; it's the overseas market, and that's why they are um, in such a frenzy to get these exportation permits through. Hmm.
0: And yeah, and, and of course, you're, you're you're talking you know about uh, a lot of these. Uh, uh, leases uh, that uh, you are, as you point out, bundled and, and flipped uh, on uh, shale fields that uh, aren't proven, and uh, that 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 compares with the mortgage backed securities that we heard about uh, in the uh, in, in the instance of the two thousand eight uh, uh, the uh, subprime mortgage uh, situation, correct?
3: Yes, it's very similar. You know, it, it's, it's interesting to look at this from the 30,000-foot view because um, there are so many similarities between what these large investment banks did uh, in the lead-up to the mortgage-backed securities crisis and what they've done with shale. And just to throw out a few, um, you mentioned the first one. In in With the mortgages, they bundled mortgages and then flipped them off, sold them off. And um, they've done the same thing with shales. These companies have gone in, they've leased up vast amounts of acreage, uh, drilled just a handful of wells so you can't possibly tell what the field is really going to be. And then they've bundled these leases and flipped them off. And to give you an idea of how lucrative this has been for both the banks and for the company, um Typically, these companies are leasing acreage for about $100 to $500 an acre, and they flipped the same, the same acreage for as much as $25,000 an acre. So it's been extraordinarily lucrative for them. And the banks, of course, have made massive fees. If you look at the price of natural gas, uh, as it started to come down after the economic downturn, that's when the banks really um, went after shales and became the chief cheerleaders, so to speak, for the shale plays. Shale should have come unraveled uh, several years ago because the wells were not making money. They can, they're very, very expensive to drill. And once that gas price drops below about seven to eight dollars, uh, for most of the plays, these sh- these shale plays don't make money. These wells don't make money. So um, this was, in my opinion, it was Wall Street. Uh, they recognized an opportunity. They could bundle leases like they had done with bundling mortgages. They created very complex financial products in a very similar way. That they created the products before the mortgage-backed securities bubble. They have. Um, there was a lack of transparency. You couldn't really see what the mortgages were like and the, the underlying quality of the mortgages back then. You can't really see. We haven't been able to see um, what these shale plays are like because there wasn't enough historical production data on them for a number of years in each play. And and that's interesting in and of itself because every time we do get enough um, historical production data. Uh, these companies begin to sell their assets very quickly indeed in every shale play to date.
0: Hmm. Now, they
3: recognize it's a drag on their share price.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, uh, we're based here in Canada, and uh, what we've been experiencing uh, in the wake of this uh, glut is that uh, with our our concerns over uh, the, 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 the availability of, of natural gas, the increased availability in natural gas, and it's depressed um, our economy as a result so i 'm i 'm wondering how the bubble burst you know how that will manifest itself and and how that would impact on us in Canada, where we have uh, um, more reliable natural gas so that that would increase the demand for our our natural gas. How would that shake out
2: well.
3: I, I don't have a crystal ball, obviously, um, but I can tell you what we're finding with the shale plays in the U.S., and, um, and then you can extrapolate from that. Uh, what we're finding based on, again, the actual production numbers, is that these shale plays are um, they play out very quickly, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about natural gas or shale oil. Um, if you look at the Bakken in North Dakota, we're finding that the average Bakken well is at stripper well status, or pretty much done, by year six. It's 94% played out by year five. Uh, the overall field declines for the shale gas plays in the U.S. are running anywhere from 30 to 50%. It will take approximately $42 billion per annum and about 7,000 new wells per annum just to keep production flat in the U.S., so you are already seeing, because of the depressed prices um, and the fact that these companies are losing so much money, you've seen the rig counts drop quite significantly over the past couple of years, which has in turn caused these plays to go into decline. Um, shale is an interesting beast. The only way shale plays work is with perpetual and and pretty... Um, Um, consistent drilling and prolific drilling. You have to keep drilling and drilling and drilling. And that's why a couple of years ago, financial analysts started referring to this as a drilling treadmill. You get on this treadmill with shales and you can't get off. Mm -hmm. Once you get off, the the production limits drastically. So what we're seeing, what the post-carbon report showed, um, looking at the data from 60,000 wells, is that um, the shale place in the U.S. will pretty much be be done by about 2024. So you're looking at, you know, about 10, maybe 15 years worth of hydrocarbons.
0: Okay. So, you know, given these realities, um, what, what should uh, the public be pulling out of this? What should we be recommending uh, to, to, to Wall Street or to policymakers? What, what, what are the specific changes that uh, should be introduced at this point?
3: Well, I think the most concerning aspect of this is that it's not long-lived. And um, the economic stability and the job growth and so forth, that's all been vastly overestimated by industry. And people have bought into that story, though, and they truly believe that they're going to have economic stability for 30 or 40 years to come. They're going to have this great job growth. That has not happened uh, there in, in any shale play to date. Uh, if you take the Barnett in Texas, which was the first shale play, and the play that has the most wells in it, we've got 18,000 wells in North Texas, shale wells. And if you look at that, the Barnett was touted to be an economic powerhouse for the region for 30 to 40 years it was played out and the operators had exited pretty much across the board um, by about year seven. And um, now the Barnett is in decline. So you, and it's been the same with every other shale play, the Fayetteville, the Haynesville, um, the Marcellus is still growing because there's still um, still, it's a, it's a relatively young play and you get your, your greatest amount of economic benefit in the first couple of years with these plays. There's no doubt about it that you do get some economic benefit in the first couple of years. It's just not that long live. But the environmental degradation is going to go on for decades and decades to come. And that's, therein lies the problem, because uh, who's going to clean this up at the end of the day? You know, you have to take into account all of this. Um, the environmental aspects have been pretty significant in areas where shale production has occurred. Um, and then of course you know you have to take into account the methane leakage and climate change numbers and and all of that adds up and so it looks to us that the economic benefit that you get upfront with shales will not even i mean it will pale in comparison to the economic detriment that you're going to get on the back
0: end of shales Mm-hmm. But given the way Wall Street works, I mean, we, we have, as you point out, these environmental deficits associated with this, but have we economically put ourselves on some sort of a treadmill where it's very difficult to remove ourselves now that we've effectively become very codependent on this uh, environmental... Uh, um, th- our economic. Uh, this economic engine has become very codependent on this uh, you know, shale, uh, gas, and oil boom.
3: Well... Um, you know there there's no doubt about it that we are addicted to hydrocarbons and we need to be looking to transition away from that because it is a finite resource and um... and it's not going to last forever now i'm not here to argue you know have we hit peak oil have we not that i leave that to other people but just from an economic standpoint if you look at at the uh... returns on investment and so forth it's quite interesting to me i mean When um, looking at projects that have been funded recently, for instance, using solar arrays on a commercial scale uh, to provide generating capacity, they're getting double-digit, low double-digit, but nevertheless double-digit returns. Now, that's very difficult to find in this market and has been for quite some time. Shales are giving you a negative net present value. So... Um, it really, if you get down and you look at the investment numbers, um, it really doesn't make sense for us to be putting all our eggs in the shale basket. We ought to be transitioning uh, to other forms of renewables. And I think that's where people are going to make the – they are making much, much better returns in that than they are in shale. I mean, you had the, the CEO of ExxonMobil, the largest oil and gas company in the world, stating just a couple of months ago, we're losing our shirt on shale." Mm. So it really doesn't make sense just from a monetary aspect.
0: Deborah Rogers, uh, I definitely want to thank you for, uh, for coming onto our program and, and sharing this uh, important analysis with us. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Deborah Rogers, the uh, founder of the Energy Policy Forum and author of a recent report on shale gas and oil economics. Much of the population of Venezuela and the world this week mourns the death of President Hugo Chavez. Many recognized him for empowering the poor and oppressed, for bringing unity to Latin America, and to fighting against imperialism. In 1994, after serving two years in prison for trying to overthrow the U.S.-sponsored government of Venezuelan President Carlos Andres Perez, Chavez led a Bolivarian revolution with the goals of social justice for the impoverished majority and independence from the U.S. and its financial Tools Under his presidency, the number of people living in poverty was cut in half, and the number living in extreme poverty cut back by 70%. Inequality was reduced, millions of Venezuelans had access to health care for the first time, and college enrollment doubled, with many receiving free tuition. Chavez was a leading figure in promoting a multipolar world. He established ties with Russia, Iran, Syria, China, and other countries in order to remove his country from the imperialist control of the U.S., to give us further insights into Chavez's life, significance, and some suspicions around his death, is writer and broadcaster Stephen Lendman. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you, Michael. I'm really delighted to come on. It's such a, such a big issue, so many big issues. But Chavez was, was such an important figure, and losing him is such an immense loss, such an immense loss.
0: I know that you uh, mentioned that you were were personally very, very affected uh, when you heard news of his death, Um, and and I noticed that you've written two articles already. You're working on a third as we record this, and and basically you've remarked that the death of Chavez marks the passing of an era, and you have condemned much of the press for failing to recognize his significance. So how would you esteem Chavez, not only as a Latin American leader, but as a figure on the world stage?
2: Well, I think without question, in Latin America, in the last century to the present day, the two most important figures were Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. And Castro referred to Chavez as uh, as, as, as the Olympic champion. I forget the precise quote, but he, he, Olympic champion were two of the words he used. The Olympic champion of, of of modern-day uh, anti-imperialism, something to that effect. And he saw him as, 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 as his rightful successor. And Chavez thought of Castro as his father, as his mentor, as, 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 as his inspiration to really do what he could do. Imagine, imagine a leader of a country, Michael, that, that actually thinks and governs by feeling that, that, that uh, serving his people, all of his people, uh, is more important than power in Chavez's mind, populism, sharing the country's oil wealth with Venezuela's people, especially the most disadvantaged, where Venezuela was either the most unequal country in Latin America, certainly one of the most unequal countries in Latin America, and Chavez was determined to change this. And he he knew he was taking a great risk. He put his life on the line. He said a number of times he thought Washington wanted to kill him. That was a very easy, an easy conclusion to draw. I mean, America's rap sheet, Michael, is just strewn with one targeted assassination after another. I mean, they kill him one way, they kill him another way. If they can't get rid of them with a coup d'etat or some other nefarious means. So Chavez knows the history. Castro sure does. And Castro told Chavez, they tried to kill me hundreds of times. I remember writing about that, Michael. Well, literally, I, I saw the number 500 times. I, I don't know that anybody kept an actual count, but for certain, America tried hundreds of times to kill Castro and failed. One time they came close. But that one failed, too. And there's no question that Bush wanted to kill or get rid of Chavez one way or another. The 2002 April coup, the two-day coup, failed. Uh, uh, An oil management lockout failed to cost Venezuela billions of dollars. Uh, The recall election in 2004 failed. Everything they tried failed. I think that Obama ordered Chavez killed. I honestly believe that. Uh, uh, We know, we know that that Israel murdered Yasser Arafat. They poisoned him with polonium, maybe something else. I think they somehow got some some foreign substance into Chavez's body, be it poison, being some kind of cancer-causing element, whatever it might have been. And I think they really did a number on him. When he went into his fourth cancer operation in 18 months, I have an old boyhood friend, Michael, who's a semi-retired doctor now, and we exchanged some thoughts on Chavez. And he explained from a medical point of view that, that, that what was going on now just did not look good. At the time, this was months ago. Well, not two, no, I'm sorry, right after, in December, in early December, after he had the surgery. So it was, it was less, maybe it was two and a half months ago. And he said at the time that he gave Chavez 18 months to live. Well, he got less than three. But he was right. Uh, cancer can reoccur. I think everyone knows that. But the idea that in 18 months, he would have the cancer, and three reoccurrences deep in my gut, Michael. I just said, this does not sound good. And I was very fearful of the worst, and the worst happened.
0: Mm. So you're, you're basically pointing to the idea that there's more here than a, a coincidence that the Washington uh, saw him as a threat and uh, the, the occurrence of this cancer.
2: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It just fits the pattern that's gone on for so many years and so many leaders have been affected all over the world oh my god, Patrice Lumumba in Africa, I, I can't think of all the ones mm. that have been affected the lucky ones were the ones like Mohammad Mosaddegh in Iran 1953, the CIA's first coup uh, they ousted him, but they didn't kill him and I think I think he died in his bed peacefully uh, he was very very lucky, but he lost power and he was lucky, but that was the CIA's first coup so they can either get him out by coups, or they can kill him, and they and they've got lots of easy ways to kill him. Uh, drones are too obvious. You, you don't want to kill Chavez with a drone. You want to kill him. Uh, kill him with cancer. I think that's exactly what happened, and now they got rid of him. But I think they may be in for a surprise, Michael. I, I honestly believe that uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, vice president, the interim president now, Chavez's choice as his successor. Uh, he he is a progressive guy. I. I think he will surprise some. Uh, he won't surprise me. I expect him to carry the torch honorably. Now, we're going to need some time. When Chavez came in, Michael, Chavez surprised. Nobody knew who Chavez was or what he stood for or anything else. In 1992, he staged a failed coup to get rid of the repressive government. But, but he was a military guy. And until somebody does something, you never know what they really are what they stand for they can say one thing like Obama and then when they get in office they can do something else I mean Obama is a serial liar and I've said this and I've written it so many times I don't, I don't know of a single major promise he made that he didn't break so the politicians could be smooth talkers James Petrus nailed Chavez, in 2008 during the can- campaign he called him a con man <laughs> He absolutely is a con man. Nailed Obama, you meant. would have been a con man, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't a con man. He was the real thing.
0: Okay. Now, I just have uh, only have time for one more quick question. Uh, This relates to, I mean, the kind of threat that uh, Chavez represented, because it was not just having a a different example within Venezuela, but he was also uh, oriented on the geopolitical world stage. I mean, what would you say was the the biggest impact he had in terms of frustrating uh, Washington's desires?
2: Oh, very important point. On the one hand, Venezuela is so important because it has the world's largest oil reserves. So so you can say, it's the oil stupid. <laughs> Washington wants its grubby hands on Venezuelan oil. You know, complete control. And the other thing is the threat of a good example. Oh, such a major point. The idea that what Chavez did successfully in Venezuela, it would spread and other countries that adopt the same thing, it could spread across Latin America to a modest degree it has in a few places, not like in Venezuela, but to a modest degree, but it could spread anywhere. By God, Michael, it could spread into America. Can you imagine <laughs> something as, 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 as off the wall as that? Now, wouldn't that be something? These guys are scared. They don't They don't want chauvismo. They want to kill it. They want to bury it. They want to be done with it. Let's hope that does not happen.
0: Okay. Well, I want to thank you very much, Stephen Lendman, uh, for uh, your thoughts on on this uh, very uh, critical development. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. And uh, Stephen Lendman is an author, uh, a writer, and broadcaster. Uh, you can read his commentaries at sjlendman.blogspot.ca. And on global research. And on global research. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering stations across the country. We are now also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at PRN.FM. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host, creator, and producer, Michael Welch. Join us again next week.